Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 40, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Last week, we finished up examining the long list of threats in Deuteronomy 28 that God made on Israel should they violate the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And these threats are called curses. Some of them are of the most extreme nature. In fact, chapter 28 actually prophesied that Israel would take on these curses because inevitably, in time, they'd break the covenant. Now, I went into some detail on the matter of, of separating the two different terms, curses and the curse, or as we better know it, the curse of the law. Now, curses refer to the individual penalties associated with the various trespasses against God, some mild, some fatal. Now, the curse refers essentially to death and to evil. The curse is more or less the sum of all the curses that ends with personal and at times, at least in the case of Israel, national destruction. But perhaps most terrifying is that subject to the curse means that one's name will be blotted out. Now we're going to explore exactly what having your name blotted out means when we get to that verse today. Now I spent a little more time with the meaning of the term the curse than perhaps some might think necessary. However, it is a term that we find used in a handful of crucial verses in the New Testament. And almost universally within the church, its meaning has been terribly misconstrued. Okay. Probably one of the ten most quoted verses in the entire New Testament is Galatians 3.13 that says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. Now, this verse that I just quoted to you is exhibit number one in most denominations' beliefs, doctrinal beliefs, that revolve around the idea that the law is inherently negative. It's a bad, it's a faulty institution that thankfully the Lord has abolished. And the explanation is that Paul says that the law itself is the curse. In other words, the phrase, the curse of the law, is like saying the curse of cancer. Cancer itself being a cursed thing. The law itself, a cursed thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. It should be clear to you by now that the law, the Torah, consisted of three primary elements. The law and the commands, the list of blessings for being obedient to those laws and commands, and then a list of curses for being disobedient to those laws and commands. The curses of the law are just one element of the law. They represent the consequences, the penalties for violations. But notice that Paul says the curse, singular, not the curses, plural. Don't ever think that this is a trivial matter. Okay. Paul even went into some detail in explaining the difference, if you'll remember, between the seed, singular, coming from Abraham, versus the seeds, plural, and why that distinction was so important. Paul was an excellent communicator. He didn't carelessly mix up singulars and plurals. The curse of the law, condemnation, is what happens to a person when one chooses death and evil over goodness and blessing by intentionally falling away from God. The curse of the law was eternal death and separation from Jehovah, then it remains the same today. What Paul is explaining 
is that Yeshua became the object of the curse of the law in our stead. And so a follower of Jesus will not have the possibility of eternal death hanging over our heads for our misbehaviors. However, the individual penalties, the curses, that do not involve eternal separation from the Lord, remain. It's a dispensational theological teaching that the Lord has turned over the administration of his justice system now to human governments. And to a degree, I can agree with that. We steal, we're put in jail. We murder, we stand to be executed. We cheat somebody, we usually have to provide reparations if we're caught. So this notion that there are no divine consequences for believers, for our earthly misbehaviors, except maybe we might lose a jewel out of our crown in eternity, is simply man-made doctrine. It's not scriptural. The Lord will, either of direct divine intervention or by means of human government that he's permitted, discipline us when we violate his commands. But the thing that has been set aside for believers is the curse of the law. Eternal damnation. Because Christ became damned, cursed for us. On the other hand, the curse of the law hovers like the grim reaper over those who do not trust him. Non-believers are already condemned by the curse of the law. In very brief summary, so there can't be any doubt what I'm saying to you. First, the law itself is not a curse and Paul never said it was. Or frankly, Paul would have gone against Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he probably wouldn't have survived under Jewish law one more day had he said it. Second, the the consequences, the curses of breaking God's laws remain up to a point. And third, a believer is indeed subject to facing consequences for sinning, but those consequences do not, generally speaking, include eternal damnation. That's what I'm saying to you. Now, what we're about to read in Deuteronomy 29 is usually called Moses' Third Discourse by Bible academics. In other words, Deuteronomy is largely a three-part message, a sermon given by Moses, given prior to Israel actually entering into the land of promise. And each part of this three-part message Moses has repeated, he's expanded, he's explained more in depth, about the Torah, the law, is given at Mount Sinai and its intent and its purpose. Now, as of the start of this chapter, chapter 29, Israel is still in the border state of Moab. They're awaiting God's orders to move and take the land. Moses has given the law to the second generation of the Exodus. The bulk of the first generation, but not all, have died out as a divine judgment because of their refusal to go in and conquer Canaan 38 years earlier. Chapter 29 is essentially Moses asking this new generation that stands before him to ratify this covenant with God, just as their parents had. You know, it's quite enlightening when we see that Israel had covenant ratification ceremonies at three places. Mount Sinai, in Moab, and then immediately upon crossing the Jordan and entering into the Promised Land. Three places, three different territories, Three covenant ceremonies. Midian, Moab, and Canaan. Now, part of the reason for this 
lies in the ancient beliefs that each identifiable territory had its own identifiable set of gods. Yehovah was indigenous to none of these territories in their minds. The Hebrews fully believed this. They subscribed to this. They had no understanding whatsoever that there was but one God, Yehovah, who was God of everything, everywhere. And we really don't even see the Lord press this issue too hard with the Israelites. In fact, the Lord sort of went out of his way to work within those beliefs, no matter how off the mark they were, as he developed Israel as his own people. Therefore, from the standpoint of the Hebrews, Jehovah was establishing himself as the highest God in each of these three territories that the Israelites entered. After all, since Israel up to now had no territory of its own, just a promise, Jehovah had no territory to rule over. Therefore, God would, in their thinking, have to confiscate a territory from some other gods and make it his own. That was the mindset. Each time they held a covenant ceremony, the Hebrews saw the Lord as establishing himself not as the only God of that territory, but as the El, the highest God of that territory. Recall from much earlier Torah studies that it was the norm for Middle Eastern cultures to have a God hierarchy with one of their gods as the highest god, and the more or less uh, the, the others more or less under his authority. See, the term in Canaan for highest god was il, I-L. The Canaanite word I-L, il, was adopted and adapted into the Hebrew religion and became the Hebrew word El, E-L such as in El Shaddai, El Roi, El Elyon, so on and so forth. But it still meant the same thing, and it brought with it the same mental picture. The highest God among the several gods of that particular territory. It's just that for the Israelites, Jehovah was their El, their, their ill. The idea of monotheism hadn't fully taken hold in their minds just yet. Let's, now with that information, read Deuteronomy 29. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 230, 230. Deuteronomy 29. Then Moshe summoned all Israel and said to them, You saw everything Adonai did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land, the great testings which you saw with your own eyes, and the signs and those great wonders. Nevertheless, to this day Adonai has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear. I led you forty years in the desert, Neither the clothes on your body nor the shoes on your feet wore out. You didn't eat bread. You didn't drink wine or other intoxicating liquor. This was so you would know that I am Adonai, your God. And when you arrived at this place, Sichon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, advanced against us in battle. We defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and to Manasseh. Therefore, observe the words of this covenant and obey them, so that you can make everything you do prosper. Now today you are standing, all of you, before Adonai, your God, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, your officers, all the men of Israel, along with your little ones and your wives, your foreigners here with you in your camp. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. The purpose is that you should enter into the covenant of Adonai your God and into his oath 
which Adonai your God is making with you today so that he can establish you today for himself as a people so that you so that for you he will be God as he said to you and he swore to your ancestors to Abraham Yitzhak and Yaakov but I'm not making this covenant and this oath only with you rather I'm making it both with him who is standing here with us today before Adonai our God and also with him who is not with us today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came directly from the nations you passed through. You saw their detestable things and their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold that they had with them. So let there not be among you, a man, a woman, a family, or a tribe whose hearts turn away today from Adonai our God to go and serve these gods of those nations. Let there not be among you a root bearing such bitter poison and wormwood. If there is such a person, when he hears the words of this curse, he will bless himself secretly, saying to himself, I'll be all right even though I will stubbornly keep doing whatever I feel like doing, so that I, although dry, will be added to the watered. But Adonai will not forgive him. Rather, the anger and jealousy of Adonai will blaze up against that person. Every curse written in this book will be upon him. Adonai will blot out his name from under heaven. Adonai will single him out from all the tribes of Israel to experience what is bad and all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the Torah. Now when the next generation, your children who grow up after you, and the foreigner who arrives from a distant land, sees the plagues of that land and the diseases with which Adonai has made it sick, and that the whole land has become burning sulfur and salt, that it isn't being sown, it's not bearing crops or even producing grass, like the overthrow of Saddam, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zvoim, for which Adonai overthrew in his furious anger, then all the nations will ask, why did Adonai do this to this land? What's the meaning of such frenzied, furious anger? People will answer, it's because they abandoned the covenant of Adonai, the God of their fathers which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods, prostrating themselves before them. Gods they hadn't known, gods for which he had not assigned them. (coughs) For this reason, the anger of Adonai blazed up against this land. It brought upon it every curse written in this book. And Adonai, in anger and fury, incensed with indignation, uprooted them from their land. He threw them out into another land, as it is today. Things which are hidden belong to Adonai our God. But the things that have been revealed belong to us. They belong to our children forever so that we can observe all the words of this Torah. The first thing Moses does is to remind Israel of their redemption history. He reminds them that many in the crowd that stand before him were eyewitnesses to the awesome wonders that Jehovah struck Egypt with in order to free his people. Simple math tells us that the oldest living Hebrews at this time, outside of Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and a small handful of others, were approaching 60 years old. When Israel left Egypt, the age of accountability was essentially the same as the youngest age a male could serve in the military, which was about 20 years old. So when God condemned that accountable Exodus generation to die out in the wilderness and never be allowed to enter Canaan, that only included people who were about 20 years of age and older at that time. Therefore, many thousands of young Israelites who were well into their late teens personally witnessed 
Not only God's plagues upon Egypt, but also the covenant that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. However, since they were not yet at an age of accountability, they could not personally accept the terms of the covenant. But their parents could agree for them. That said, once each minor reached the age of accountability, he or she had to personally agree, or not, to become a member of the covenant community. Thus we see this God pattern emerge. The parents of an Israelite child who as was not as yet the age of accountability could include that child in the covenant provisions. In fact, as we're going to see, this concept plays forward in the sense that every future generation of Israelites that is born is considered to be automatically born under the covenant. With some caveats that we don't need to get into. However, once that child reaches an age of accountability, he or she must declare for themselves their allegiance to the covenant or they're no longer considered as covenant members. In a broad sense, that's the purpose of a bar mitzvah and a bas mitzvah. And why reading from the Torah is such a key element of it. Okay. We could call this event when a child reaches the age of accountability and declares allegiance to God for him or herself a covenant renewal ceremony. And that is exactly what we're seeing in Deuteronomy chapters 26 through 30. Now, this notion is probably familiar to all of you who are listening. Depending upon your upbringing, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, and which denomination you're involved in, the matter of whether a child is under the covenant protection of God and what age is considered the age of accountability varies some. But the concept remains the same and Deuteronomy is the source. If one goes strictly according to scripture, then the age of accountability is the age that military conscription can occur. At the same time, until the age of accountability, that child is under the same status as their parents. If the parents are under the covenant, that child's under the covenant. Ah, the parents are outside the covenant. Their child is outside the covenant. It works the same way, of course, with the New Testament, unless that child makes a profession of faith on their own. Now, Moses says, you know, many of you personally witnessed the wonders of Egypt and Mount Sinai. And then in verse 3, he says, despite that, despite the fact you saw it, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand. He hasn't given you eyes to see, ears to hear. Meaning that they didn't understand the meaning of it all. Let me tell you, this is a powerful statement. You know, there's an interesting play on words that we kind of miss because of the English translation. It essentially says, you have seen, but you don't see. But it also says that even though you have ears, you don't hear. What actually it says is that even though you have ears, you don't shema. You may eventually get a little tired of me reminding you of this, but shema does not mean merely to hear. Inherent in the word is that you're obedient to what you have heard. It doesn't mean to hear or to listen as in the passive sense as we use those words today. Without doing what you heard, you have not Shema. Anyone who has gone to church but for a few months knows 
There are many who come and hear. Oh, they listen good. The sound of the words, those sentences goes into their ears. Oh, they understand the words, the sentences. It registers, but there's no response. This is what Moses is getting at. You have ears. Your sensory organs are registering all those sounds of the words I'm emitting from my mouth to you. But up to now, you're not doing what the words command you to do. Now, altogether, this verse that speaks of minds that do not understand, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, are describing spiritual blindness. Don't misunderstand this verse, though. This is not at all like a rabbi or a pastor chastising his congregation by telling telling them that they're spiritually blind. Rather, this is Moses saying that up to this point, God has not given them yet the gift of spiritual awareness. But But now he has. Now he has. So they're finally ready to accept the covenant and to perform its terms in a much fuller sense than by their mere mechanical actions. Now I told you as we entered chapter 26, the first of this special four chapter section, that there were great mysteries prophecies, unrevealed things in it that have confounded Hebrew sages and Christian scholars alike. The statement about God having not given his Hebrew people the minds to understand, the eyes to see, the ears to hear is one of those mysteries. Let's face it. Taken in its plainest sense, this means that God must give each of us spiritual awareness or we can't begin to properly carry out his instructions. Can't do it. Put another way, spiritual awareness can be withheld by God until when, if ever, he deems he wants you to have it. And without this spiritual awareness, there is no hope of comprehending the significance of God's laws and commands and his redemption plan and its process. No hope. You know, I can recall in a visit with Becky's father when Becky was witnessing to him years ago, his insistence that try as he might, he can make no sense out of the Bible. He reads it, but it's just, it's just words that, that, that evades his ability to, to, to really comprehend. Now, this was an intelligent and educated man. He was a retired school teacher who was frustrated because he could see that the Bible was words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters, but it just didn't have any real meaning to his mind. About six months before he passed, he accepted Yeshua as his Savior. And he spent a lot of his remaining days reading and enjoying and finally comprehending the Holy Scriptures. There's only one reasonable conclusion I can come to. It takes divine intervention to give us the perception necessary to really understand the divine word of God. Yet, here were his redeemed people wandering around out in the desert, armed with the laws of Moses but constantly finding themselves in big trouble with God for all their disobedience. The implication is that while the Lord had given them the law, he hadn't given them the ability to understand its underlying meaning. The highly acclaimed Jewish Torah scholar, Jeffrey Tige, who's not a believer, by the way, comes to this conclusion 
from what we read here in Deuteronomy. He says, this seems to imply that God does give the heart the capacity for faith, but that he only does so for those who seek it. Man must have the desire to obey God. Only then will God help him to do so. Faith, trusting God, was the key. That law that was given to Israel was given to them not because they were seeking it or because they were faithful, because they weren't, but because God was faithful. But even the giving of the law at Mount Sinai did not automatically relieve the Israelites, of their spiritual blindness. Only those Hebrews who had faith, who had trusted Yehovah, were given the unlock code to God's word. Only those who loved God and wanted to be obedient were given the minds to understand, the eyes to see, the ears to hear. Naturally, this pattern is sent forward. And it's the basis for the New Testament and our modern lives. Galatians 3.2 I want to know from you just this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by legalistic observances of Torah commands? Or by trusting in what you heard and being faithful to it? As T. Gay discovered for himself, Moses was saying that receiving the law is a separate issue from receiving the ability to comprehend the law. God has already given the gift of the law even to those who weren't looking for it. But the gift of understanding it as divinely intended only comes to those who personally seek him in trust and in a desire to be obedient to him. Paul is saying precisely the same thing. When we determine by our wills to seek God, to be obedient to him, and we understand sufficiently to accept the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, as our needed Redeemer, then we're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the church's unlock code to the Word of God. Without the Holy Spirit, oh, we we can read those words of the Bible. We can memorize them. We can recite them. To some extent, we can do them. But without the Holy Spirit, we'll never be able to understand them and their intent. And doing the law without trusting God is a hollow and meaningless endeavor that does not please the Lord. That is, in fact, the true definition of legalism. Verse 5 makes the comment that while out in the wilderness the Israelites didn't eat bread or drink wine or strong strong drink. This was so they might know the Lord. Look, this isn't a diatribe against wine and shechar, strong drink, any more than it's a diatribe against bread. It's simply saying that rather than the staples of the Hebrew diet, bread and wine, they ate manna, quail, and drank water. All things that were provided supernaturally. Bread, lechem, is the product of human endeavor. Is it not? Wine is the product of human endeavor. Is it not? Manna came ready to eat. Poured out of heaven. Quail wasn't raised and fed and bred and cared for, it came ready to eat. It literally fell out of the sky. The water didn't come from wells that were dug, canals that were dredged, cisterns that were carved out to catch the water of flash floods. 
Whenever naturally available water from a spring wasn't available, God simply provided it from the most absurd and improbable sources. Rocks. And all this was so no Israelite could take any credit for the provisions of life and sustenance during those 40 years out in the wilderness, most of which actually was amounting to an exile. Now that, my friends, is mercy. Now a couple things to take notice of. Wine, strong drink, is perfectly allowable according to the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with alcoholic beverages. Wine, in fact, is the biblical symbol and metaphor of joy. Yeshua turned water into wine because weddings were to be joyful. And the wedding he and his mother were attending was running short of wine and therefore of joy. Why was wine associated with joy? Because people got a little tipsy. (laughs) They kind of forgot some of their cares, felt a little less pain in those bodies. They laughed a little bit more. They put some of their worldly burdens aside for a short time. Wine tasted good. It smelled good. Even strong drink, what we might call hard liquor or even beer, was acceptable. But of course, not to the point of drunkenness and irresponsibility. Now notice the three spheres of existence that the sustenance of life for Israel came from. Manna came from heaven. Quail from the sky, from the heavens, water from the earth. Heaven, the spiritual world, the sky, the heavens, what we look at when we look out at night, we see all those stars, then the earth, the physical earth we live on. God is sovereign. He is Lord of all these areas that represent not only our entire seen and and knowable universe, but also the invisible and unknowable spiritual realm. He provides for our needs from every one of these areas. Boy, our God's an awesome God. From verses 9 through 20, we witness the actual covenant ratification ceremony. And the first words of this ceremony are, You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord. The word stand is significant. In Hebrew, it is nitzaf. And it means that you are presenting yourselves to the Lord. Recall that I mentioned that the Hebrew language does not employ tenses, past, present, future, per se. Rather, they employ something called perfect and imperfect, or complete and incomplete. The idea is that something has been established, and it's completed, or something has been established, and it's still ongoing. But it's not done yet. Here, Nitzav is used in the perfect. It is not saying that at this moment you are now presenting yourselves to the Lord. Rather, it means you have been presenting yourselves to the Lord and you continue to. And the text goes to great lengths to include every last person traveling with and among Israel. Leaders, men, women, children, even foreigners. Woodchoppers. And water drawers are the lowliest of tasks. So this means that no social group was left out. All of the people are present at the covenant ratification ceremony. And the people were present to be given an opportunity to become a member of the covenant community that is to to reaffirm their membership. A covenant that verse 12 says is a covenant with its oaths. Or other versions, a covenant with its sanctions. These are correct, but it misses the point. What this verse means is a covenant with its curses. The Hebrew is berit vela which most literally is a covenant guarded by curses. 
in a sense, this was a caution. It was a warning signal. Do not enter into this covenant with me lightly because the repercussions from breaking its terms can be fatal. Not surprisingly, this same warning is found in the New Testament for those who would enter into the Israelite covenant by means of Yeshua's sacrifice. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the Lord's bread, drinks the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of desecrating the body and blood of the Lord. Yet a covenant guarded by curses was a rather common phrase used throughout the Middle East to describe treaties made between a powerful king and the vassal cities and states he ruled over. These treaties always had the purpose and the terms well spelled out. The obligations to both sides were agreed to. And finally, the curses that would happen to the vassal state if they should break that treaty, were well defined. So the Israelites fully understood the sober and serious nature of what it was that they were agreeing to. I wonder if we modern believers take it very seriously. Then the Lord makes it abundantly clear that Canaan was the land he had promised to Israel. It had always been the promised land. It was not any suitable territory that the Israelites wandered into and preferred. It wasn't left up to chance and serendipity or the vagaries, uh, the vagaries rather, of history or of human politics. You know, it's awfully easy to see the land of Israel is just a place where the Jews live. Why is it so necessary it has to be that particular place? In fact, much of the world today is asking that same question. Why there? Let's move them. Since the Muslims insist that the land the Jewish nation sits upon should be theirs, Let's just move those Jews to some other place because then it won't cause so darn much trouble. In fact, about a century ago, such a thing came within a hair's breadth of actually happening. The father of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, about a hundred years ago, was approaching various governments around the world to try and acquire a place for a Jewish homeland. He wanted Palestine, of course, the former Canaan. But the Arabs were having none of it. Finally, the British offered him a large colonial territory that they'd lost interest in. Today we know this place is the country of Uganda. The World Zionist Congress had heated debates as to whether they should accept the British offer and in a very close vote they rejected Uganda as their new Jewish homeland. The rest, as they say, is history. Even if they had voted to accept Uganda, it would not have represented their return from exile, as prophesied by the prophets. The land of Canaan is special to God for his own good reasons. The promised land is not any land sufficient to house Israel. It's a very specific, divinely ordained place. God was making that clear to the second Exodus generation. He made it clear by his divine providence in the late 1800s, and he's making it clear still today. But does the church have the eyes to see and the ears to hear? 
The world certainly doesn't. I got news for you. Many Jews don't either. The Lord says He's not only making this covenant with those standing before Him today in Moab, but with those who aren't here today. And since the previous verse makes it clear that every living Israelite was present to hear Moses, this is referring to all the descendants of those who are present, the future generations. Interestingly, the Midrash Tanumah deals with this matter. And it says that the pre-incarnate souls of all future Hebrews were present at this covenant ceremony. And so they too heard Moses and became part of the covenant. Now we might want to call that fanciful thinking, but we modern Christians in general accept a pretty similar doctrine. Right? That, in, that every soul that will ever live was created in the beginning and is with God until he creates that individual and physical form and he puts that eternal soul within him or her. Not every denomination believes that, but that's pretty common in Christianity. Even if you don't accept that interpretation, at the least the covenant is being offered to all Hebrews of future generations, just as the new covenant was offered to all future generations of humanity, not just the one that was present when Yeshua came. Now, starting in verse 15, Moses cautions that the covenant community must keep their wits about them. They need to be on watch. For anyone who take, has taken the oath of the Mosaic Covenant, but then they turn around and decide that now that they've declared that they're part of that covenant, safe, sound, protected, they can just go live life as they please without regard to the terms of the covenant. This is illustrated as a man or woman who would remember the nations that the horde of the three million Israelites wandered through on their way to Canaan and remember the gods of gold and silver that those nations worshipped and, and, and then they would choose to serve those false gods. Such a person is viewed as bitter poison, as wormwood. In other words, they're dangerous to the community at large because they just might entice others to do what they've chosen to do. Now understand, as much as exactly this scenario happened in Israel's history, and, and we read about it at length, by the way, in Judges and all the books of the prophets, it was rare that a Hebrew would renounce Yehovah and then take up worshiping other gods in his place. Rather, they would simply go on with what we talked about a few minutes ago. They would see Yehovah as the El, the highest God in the territory. They'd keep him, but they'd also add a few of the lesser gods to their repertoire. This felt perfectly reasonable to them. They'd go to the temple. They'd attend the biblical feasts. They'd bring in their tithes. They'd sacrifice at the brazen altar. Then they'd also have these little wooden and stone idols of other gods in their homes. They'd pay homage to them as well, often in secret so their neighbors wouldn't know. Needless to say, they were pretty shocked when God's curses fell upon them with their usual excuse being, but God, didn't we call on your name? You know, we read of this scenario over and over ad nauseum in the books of the prophets. Some of you know right where this is leading, don't you? This pattern naturally presents itself in the New Testament as well. 
Okay, And the falling away and worshiping other gods may be just as prevalent in the institutional church today as it was with the Hebrews and the days of the evil kings of Israel. <coughs> Who has not heard that repeated phrase of Jesus where he said in Matthew 7.22, On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, here in Deuteronomy 29... Jehovah was warning through Moses that while redemption and signing on to the covenant were good things, that one had to continue in their trust and obedience to maintain their position within the covenant community. Do you think that's changed with Jesus? But as with so many doctrines of this sort, the Holy Scriptures prove that what the vast bulk of Christianity thinks is so, isn't. Listen to Romans 11.9. So you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, true, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. But you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. You keep your place because of that trust. If God didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided... You maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off too. You know, it's very concerning to me that so many of us think that we can get up from a pew, walk that aisle, say the words, say the the sinner's prayer, and then figure we've completed our obligations to God. That's it. We're done now. that now that we've joined the new covenant community, we have no duties. There's no rules. There aren't even any consequences for our actions. What a deal. There's not one scripture in the Old Testament or the New that even implies such a thing. The only reason this kind of thought exists within far too many of our doctrines is to deal with the supposed problem of legalism. To deal with works as a means to salvation. That somehow or another, to obey the written scriptural commands amounts to legalism. To do good, to do righteous deeds, is to try to gain our salvation through self-justifying works. I believe it's time for the church to repent of this. To re-examine these issues before it's too late. For millions of churchgoers who honestly think they're safely within the congregation of the Lord and yet they have no interest in His word or His ways. None. You know, verse 19 is downright terrifying. It says that the Lord will not forgive those who fall away in this manner. And that the sum total of every curse of the law will be upon that person. That Jehovah will blot out his name from under heaven. I told you at the beginning, we find out what blot out his name means. For most of you, I think the meaning is becoming clear. It means eternal death. It's speaking of the curse of the law. It's absolute condemnation. One who signs onto the covenant and then falls away from it, 
will suffer the same fate as those who worship the golden calf. He will suffer the same fate as God imposed on the Amalekites, the permanent wrath of God and permanent separation from him. Verse 20 explains that the Lord will single out people for this fate. It will be done in accordance to the terms of the covenant. The would-be apostate person should not think that he's going to somehow kind of get lost, hide within the covenant community, and escape his fate. God will never find him. Nor should he think that all divine punishments and disciplines occur only on the the congregational level, only on the national level. Rather, the Lord will deal with covenant violators on a person-by-person basis, and there is no hiding from it. And one of the purposes for Jehovah condemning apostates, individual by individual, and dealing with them in the most devastating and horrific way is so that others who come later see what happened to them. The cursed will become a sign for future generations not to test the Lord in this way. Now I want to point out something interesting that's now said that sheds light on something of a puzzle that goes back to Genesis, and we'll end up with this. These verses use the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the cities of Adma and uh, Zeboim, as illustrations of the complete annihilation that apostizers can expect. And it says that these cities were so completely devastated by sulfur and salt that they were on, they were beyond any ability to produce crops or pasture land, even for a place to, for wild animals to feed. These cities were essentially thrown into the lake of fire and abandoned by God and therefore man forever. Recall that Lot and his family were rescued by an angel from that evil city of Sodom. And that as they fled, they were instructed not to look back. But one did. Lot's wife disobeyed and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now of itself, salt can be useful and good. It can preserve, it can season. Yet salt can also be very destructive. The idea is that even though Lot's wife was given the opportunity to escape destruction, in fact, she had escaped, she still didn't trust. She fell away from God. And she wound up suffering the same fate as she would have had she just simply sat on that chair in her house in Sodom. She turned to salt. She became the same agent of soil-destroying poison, salt, that made Sodom and Gomorrah uninhabitable and unusable. You see, it was usual for a powerful king who had treaties with many smaller vassal cities to come and utterly destroy that city if they rebelled against it. It'd be a warning sign to all of his other vassal cities not to follow their lead. And in the process, you see, the king's men would bring sulfur, literally, and salt, literally, and they would spread it all over the arable farmland. The two chemicals would combine and make the land utterly unusable for anything. The sulfur sulfur created a foul odor. The salt poisoned the soil. Nothing would grow. That Lot's wife was a pillar of salt would better be translated as a monument of salt. She became a sign. She became a warning. She was a hazard marker. 
to all who would turn back from their redemption and from their Redeemer. Jeremiah 17.6 He will be like a tamarisk in the Arabah. When relief comes, it's unaffected. For for it lives in the sun-baked desert in salty, uninhabitable land. Matthew 5.13 You are salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out for people to trample upon. I think that'll do it for tonight. We'll get into the end of chapter 29 next time and then move on into Deuteronomy 30.